Why Wasn't It Better? I'm your host, Patrick Darms. And I'm your co-host, Anton Paras. And we have a return guest, Paul Kind. Yes. Welcome back. Welcome, thank Paul. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, your foreign correspondent coming back. That's right. Yeah, your first appearance was, of course, in the second season when you were here for therapy to discuss your hatred right. of Alien 3. I've saved so much money now. My therapy is over. I can see a bright future. It's brilliant. <laughs> and thank you for allowing me to vent my spleen on that show. Is that like a ringing endorsement that if we guests have some um, health benefits from being on the show? I think you should be looking uh, yeah. for some sponsorship, right? <laughs> we are looking, trust us. Again, the Omega thing, pending. I'm just going to label it as pending. You're here today to discuss a film that you don't hate, which is a good thing. But before we get into that, Anton, I think we should cover some admin. Uh, once again, thank you to all of our YouTube listeners who are continuing to grow, as well as all of our listeners on the various platforms like Spotify. We love the feedback that we're getting. We love the comments, the questions. It's all helpful, or we're trying to incorporate as, as much as we can. It's uh, of any episode to be thankful, shouldn't it be this uh, Thanksgiving episode for all of our listeners? That's right. This is the episode that uh, the listeners will hear the day before Thanksgiving. So if you're one of our American listeners, a happy Thanksgiving from us ha at uh, Why Wasn't It Better. Yeah, happy Thanksgiving, and I know I'm very thankful for each and every single listener, supporter, friend of the show, guest that we've had, and you know, Pat, I'm thankful for you. So, oh, well, there, happy welcome. Thanksgiving, my friend. The feelings mutual. Uh, I feel very blessed that I've been able to do this with you, Anton. It's been it's been a wonderful experience so far, and we've got so much more planned for the podcast. We're just yes, getting well, started, even though we're now in our third season. Well, amen. Let's carve into this turkey and eat. Wait, sorry. This was our podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I guess it's probably outdated now, but congratulations to the oh. Texas Rangers winning their first World Series far earlier in the month at this point. Yep. But we always try to insert to, random sports references in. Absolutely. Congratulations, Bruce Bochy, uh, San Francisco Giants great, and now winning his, I believe, fourth ring. So that's amazing um, yes and Giants, he's, he's like now joined up. the very short list of managers who have won world series with teams in both leagues yes yes so very pretty rare i mean he's a all-time great i'll say it and i'm we, we miss you boach but congratulations and i'm glad to see texas is treating you well indeed uh paul anything you want to plug or promote before we delve into this week's film You'd be pleased to know I have absolutely nothing to promote but this podcast. Oh, that's totally fine. Yeah, you, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. And uh, yeah, I would also thank you for saving me from having to watch Halloween 2. From what I heard, it sounds like a film to avoid. Uh, I, we, were, <laughs> we all kind of liked it. What do you mean? Well, it's... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Just right. get it out. Just get it out. <laughs> It's not. I mean, it's not a. It's not a perfect film, but you know, it's not for Paul, I'd say if you if you have some time, check it out. What I might take not your, your advice. Cup of tea. Is, well, I mean, I might take your advice and watch. Sorry, not Halloween. My my bad. My bad. Not Halloween. I'm talking about The Exorcist too. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, no! Avoid, don't watch that. Avoid movie. Yeah. No, no, yeah. no! 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 Yes. Avoid it. Yeah. Yes. No, actively no, that was, avoid. That was a. That was a giant pile of crap. Yep. Yeah, although was that the one where you should you suggested maybe watching it with the original together? No, that was, no that was Halloween. That's Halloween too. Yeah. yeah, 
Yeah. It's all yeah. blurring these films. Yeah. No, Halloween 2 takes place immediately after the first one begins. It, it kind of functions as like one big film, and it, 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 it's pretty good. Well, here we are today. We have quite a film, quite a meaty film for our Thanksgiving yes, special. This is, this is as meaty as a film gets. It's four hours long. And it's the um, it's our third entry in our unofficial anniversary series that we're doing this season. We're to this week we are celebrating the 60th anniversary of Cleopatra, and it's the oldest film that we've covered so far on the podcast. And I was concerned that that was the reason why you invited me to the show because you think I'm old enough to have been around for the first time. I knew that you weren't that old, <laughs> and you lo- there we you, go. You're, you got a loophole here because you invited yourself. Because when I sent you a list of potentials, yeah. you were like, I'd love to talk about Cleopatra. That is true. That is true. <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> fair point, fair point. Yeah, I mean, it was definitely, it is one of those films which I'd always wanted to watch because I'd always seen the clips of Cleopatra's entry into Rome. And all the other bits that surrounded the film. But then, as you say, four hours, it's like I've got better things to do with my time and I just never yeah. bothered to watch it until you suggested. And I thought, yeah, actually, this is the time. Oh, so you hadn't seen it before this? No. Interesting. I had not either. But um, yeah, let me intro this and we'll and we'll get into it. So Cleopatra is a lengthy, sprawling, spectacular love story depicting Queen Cleopatra's manipulation of Julius Caesar and Mark Antony in her ill-fated attempt to save the Egyptian Empire from Roman conquest. This threesome is one of the most famous and gloriously powerful love triangles ever to be captured on film. Cleopatra was released on June 12, 1963 by 20th Century Fox. It was directed by Joseph L. Mankiewicz, the screenplay was written by Joseph L. Mankiewicz, Ronald MacDougall, and Sidney Buchman. The film stars Elizabeth Taylor, Richard Burton, Rex Harrison, Roddy McDowell, Pamela Brown, Martin Landau, George Cole, and Cesare DeNova. A budget of, get ready for this, gentlemen, $44 million. That is the equivalent of $441 million adjusted for inflation. And a box office... Wow. Return of $57.8 million. That is $579 million adjusted for inflation. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Almost Marvel-esque in its budget. Um, Actually, more. That is, yeah. (laughs) Shockingly more. They were were not afraid to spend. No. Well, they were were not afraid and afraid at the same time, somehow, sadly. But as far as why this movie was chosen, it's indirectly my selection by way of my father. So when I first told my dad about the podcast before we even recorded our first episode, I asked him for suggestions of movies that, you know, met the criteria for why wasn't it better. And Cleopatra was his instantaneous first suggestion. And I had never seen it before, like you, Paul. I had, you know, being the film buff that I am, I was, of course, familiar with it, but the four-hour length had always scared me away. But doing the research for this, it really is a perfect choice for the podcast. It had the biggest stars of its day. The buzz and hype around it was immense and completely crazy. They spent a ton of money making it. $44 million, $440 million today. There were two directors, two separate casts, and two and a half years of on and off filming in three different continents to bring this to the screen. It was the biggest movie of its era. It was the highest grossing film of 1963. 
It received all the awards nominations that you would expect of, of a film this size. It was nominated for Best Picture and Best Director and a whole bunch of technical awards. It won four Oscars. Despite all that, it has a pretty infamous reputation. It's remembered as a bomb for far more than it is as a success. The enormous cost and the press overshadowed everything about it. It's frequently cited as one of the most expensive disappointments in all of cinematic history. Books have been written about this movie. That's how notorious its reputation is. So we absolutely had to cover this. I am old enough to remember all the media content that was coming out about Titanic in the months leading up to that film's release in 1997. You know, I remember hearing about the budget was out of control, James Cameron was a dictator, it was a guaranteed dud, yada, yada, yada. This was fresh off of Waterworld, which had been an, you know, an infamous failure. Both of those films would have paled in comparison to Cleopatra in 1963. Patrick, would you say also it was the last film from the sort of swords and sandals era? I mean, it was so big and just was so, if you like, not as successful as the previous films that come out prior to that, that it almost like we're done now. This is the end. We can't carry on doing these kind of films anymore pretty much there was one film that came out a year later called the the rise or i think it was called the fall of the roman empire and it was a complete bomb and that was in yeah that would have been 1964 and yeah to your point the sword and sandal era completely died until it was briefly revived in 2000 with gladiator yeah yeah right i mean very popular trend though at the time i mean of course predecessor to this film spartacus (laughs) ben-hur than her right yeah the, the um, robe right there was the 10 10 commandments i got, I got oh that's right that, yeah that counts yeah yeah uh, the, the sound of music i'm just kidding <laughs> yeah uh quo vadis i'm not sure i even saw that go. one um, mm, breakfast at tiffany's <laughs> the sandals aspect yes yeah right that's what i was thinking sure but yeah this this movie it, it's four hours long which is tough yeah, cool. so how many listeners can... I'm wondering how many listeners have sat through like a four-hour movie. Was was, you, was some of the Lord of the Rings director cuts, were they close to four hours? Yeah, they would have been. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, for sure. But a lot more entertaining. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, four hours in of itself, I would not call problematic. There's nothing wrong with a long movie. It, I think... But it's uh, Anton, hard um, to do. Our well. previous guest Garrett made the point: the length of a movie is irrelevant, right? It, it's all about the pacing. You should never feel the runtime. It could be long, it could be short. As long as it's paced well, it's usually okay. I do think subject matter is also a factor. There's just some movies that you have to wonder, like, why is this three mm-hmm. hours? I'm looking at you, the newest Batman movie. And right, and we're, we're kind of hinting at it a little bit, but there's a lot that was in Cleopatra's court. <laughs> no pun intended that really did not lend itself to fit into a four-hour film. It was... No. Uh, but no. We'll, we'll go in a bit about that. Um, I have to I, say, as a fr- as this is a total first for this podcast. I always try to watch movies beginning to end. I, I don't like separating them, but I had to do it here. Based on the advice of my father, I watched this in... I watched it like it was a miniseries, and I think I watched it in three separate sittings. And even though this this film does have an intermission, I did not even make it to the intermission on the first time. I just wanted to, I, uh, I mean, no pun intended, I wanted to pace myself. I don't know if that's technically cheating, because that's not how you're supposed to watch a movie, but I think it did help a lot. Yeah. I mean, I, I actually checked, like, 
Spartacus came in at 197 minutes. Ben-Hur was 212. But I'd happily sit through those two films. I wouldn't, yeah. you know, say, oh, actually, three hours in Spartacus. I think I need to take a break. But with this one, it definitely deserved an intermission. Let's get into the production history. Or should I say, we're going to get right into the reasons of why this wasn't better. Because the production history of this film is like nothing else we have ever covered on this podcast. Books have been written about the making of this film. There is a lot of content to sift through, so please bear with us. For the record, I have never had to compile notes solely about a film's production like this before. I'm actually surprised they haven't made a movie about the making of this movie. To call this a shit show would be an understatement. And with that being said, gentlemen, let's get in. Number one reason why this wasn't better is the troubled production. There's a really great book called Fiasco, which is written by James Robert Parrish, which details a a number of infamous Hollywood productions, and it covers Cleopatra in its longest chapter. I'd like to read to you both an excerpt from the intro of this chapter. Quote, few motion pictures made during the entire 20th century received as much worldwide publicity as Cleopatra. During its prolonged production, this overbloated biblical epic came under tremendous scrutiny. In retrospect, One has to be awed by the astounding degree of chaotic mismanagement, clashing egos, and incredibly self-indulgent behavior. From start to finish, Cleopatra was a stupefying example of how, in the era of the rotting Hollywood studio system, a film could run so out of control because there was no longer an efficient studio hierarchy and machinery to guide the unwieldy production, end quote. Well, if that doesn't give you an idea of what went on. This film's origins began far before 1963. I didn't realize this, but this film is technically considered a remake. Veteran producer Walter Wanger had long desired to make his own version of the Cleopatra story, which had been previously adapted into film versions twice in 1917 and 1934. So yeah, technically this version that is the most famous version is considered a remake. And just a side note about Wanger, just to add to the the craziness of the making of this film, uh, Wanger is best known for the attempted shooting murder of his wife's lover, for which he served prison time earlier in the 1950s, and he ended up being paroled before he got into making this movie. So that's how this film started. This guy that shot his wife's lover and didn't kill him, so he didn't get life in prison, apparently. Good start to production, knowing that, You've got someone like that at the helm. Right, yeah. Who started your project? Uh, A a convicted attempted murderer. Great. Isn't that still Hollywood nowadays? Someone's got, everyone's got a rap sheet. There's always some skeleton in the closet for Hollywood. So Wanger had wanted to cast Elizabeth Taylor in the role going back as far as 1951 after seeing her in A Place in the Sun. He approached her as early as 1958 and Taylor expressed interest in the role. Wanger then took his idea for this film to Spyro Skouras at 20th Century Fox. Skouras was the head of Fox at the time. 20th Century Fox in the late 1950s was not a well-run operation. All the studios in general were suffering from the rise of television and the court-ordered dissolution of the studio monopoly system. This is back when the studios actually owned all the theaters and they were ordered by the government to break this up. Right. But... Skouras and his company, Fox, they were having a particularly rough time of it. And an, an internal report published in 1962 revealed a four-year loss of $61 million. That's about $600 million in today's money. Mm. So attempted murderer, 
and this pretty incompetent studio, how could this possibly go wrong? Skoros, he liked Wanger's concept, and he thought that they could simply rewrite the screenplay from the 1917 version. However, that was a silent film, and therefore this turned out to be very naive on his part. So in December 1958, Ludie Clare, a writer and former actress, was hired to write a rough draft of the screenplay. Another writer was hired shortly after. Fox's goal was initially to make this a relatively cheap production, so just make your jokes now. No casting had begun yet. They wanted this to be cheap. Joan Collins tested for the part of Cleopatra. Joanne Woodward, the, the wife of Paul Newman at the time, she remained married to Newman up until his death in 2008. She tested for the role. An actress named Susie Parker was considered. But Wanger disliked all of these choices, and he instead suggested Susan Hayward, all the while wanting Taylor, ultimately. Elizabeth Taylor was, I would say, one of two of the most famous actresses in the world at this time, would be her and, her and Marilyn Monroe. Around this same time, production designer John DeCure was hired to begin concept artwork, and even at one point, Alfred Hitchcock was offered the project, but he declined. Very wise decision on Alfred Hitchcock's part. Yeah, that would have been a very different film. It probably would have been a good film. Probably. But Maybe. if he had done Maybe. this at this time, we probably don't get North by Northwest, and we probably don't get Psycho, so... I think that worked out well for Hitchcock. Fair enough. Skoros eventually settled on a gentleman named Ruben Mamoulian to direct, who had worked with Wanger years before. Mamoulian apparently offered the title role to Dorothy Dandridge, an African-American actress. In late 1959, Wanger officially offered the role to Elizabeth Taylor. Now, based on the advice of her then-husband, that probably would have been her fifth or sixth husband, not, not really sure, but she asked for $1 million, that's about $10 million in today's money, plus 10% of the box office gross. This kind of ask was virtually unheard of at the time. Only William Holden and two other actors had been paid a million dollars for a single picture. So Taylor and the studio eventually agreed to the following, a salary of $750,000, $4,500 in weekly living expenses for Taylor, her husband, and her entourage, 10% of the box office gross, $50,000 per week if the shoot went over the planned 16-week schedule, and a $150,000 salary for her husband who would be credited as her quote-unquote assistant. The other thing I heard was her husband who passed away, Mike Todd, she insisted that the film be shot in Todd Ayo, which is a sort of different film technique, film stock. And I think she got there for the, the rights for that. So on top of all the things you quoted, Patrick, it also included that aspect as well. So very astute. She did negotiate for that as well, which of course only added to the cost of the film. Because I, I think I don't know a ton about Todd Ao. I'm, I'm hardly an expert in like film stocks, but I, I'm under, my understanding of it is that it was a just more expensive way to film. It was, I think, it was filmed on, I think, seventy mil stock. But it was the idea was to get this wide aspect ratio. Yeah. So to kind of compete with TV, so it gave people a reason to experience something different at the theatre as opposed to what they would get on TV. And it was to sort of compete against the three projection system. I can't remember what the name of it is, but it was, a, so you had just had a single projector rather than three. Uh, and it also had a better audio tracks on it as well. So it was an interesting concept. Yeah, it was a wise move on her part, I suppose. 
And then, so this guy, Wanger, he wanted Lawrence Olivier or Rex Harrison for the role of Julius Caesar and Richard Burton for Mark Antony. However, the studio refused to approve Harrison and Burton at the time. By August of 1960, Peter Finch was cast as Julius Caesar. Stephen Boyd, who you may recognize as um, the antagonist from Ben-Hur, he was set to play Mark Antony. By this point, sets were already under construction in the studio backlot. But now the problem was that Elizabeth Taylor and Mamoulian both disliked the screenplay. So in the spring of 1960, English novelist Lawrence Durrell was hired to do a rewrite. They actually scouted Rome as the production location, but there were conflicts with the 1960 Summer Olympics, so it caused them to look elsewhere. Now, and after much deliberation, Fox's head of production, Buddy Adler, he chose Pinewood Studios in England as a location. Now, mind you, this is a film that takes place in Egypt and Italy, and they chose England as the filming location. Sunny old England. Mm-hmm. Of course. Yeah. It's, it's where everyone goes to get a suntan. Well, those who listen to this podcast know how Anton and I feel about Pinewood Studios. We think quite Our good friends at Pinewood Studios. Yeah. I feel like every other film we've covered has a connection to Pinewood. I have to go back and look uh, into that. I feel we've, we've brought it up a bunch of times. Yeah, a ton of times. I mean, it's a well-storied and something of the continuation of a theme for a lot of our episodes is good old Pinewood. Indeed. But, of course, this guy Wanger, he cautioned about shooting in England in a July 15th memo. He stated that the weather conditions would could jeopardize Taylor's health and that the labor force was insufficient. However, Fox management overruled his decision. Around this time, Buddy Adler, the head of production at Fox, he died of cancer and was replaced. It's also worth pointing out that at around this time, Skoros and Wanger began having what could be best described as, quote, major disagreements. More on that later. So principal photography, it began at Pinewood on September 28th, 1960. Remember this date, September 28th, 1960. Mind you, this film did not come out until June of 63. So on the same day, the British Hairdressers Union threatened to leave production as Taylor was using an American hairdresser, and the studio had to reach a settlement with the union where Taylor's hairdresser could only work on her hair in the suite at the Dorchester Hotel in London. Paul, you know your London pretty well. The Dorchester is, uh, I'd say, top dollar. Absolutely, yeah. You get all the big stars going there, and some very often they would have like an entire floor. And if people like Liz Taylor would very often have places redecorated to their liking because there were basically residents there. Why not? She was getting 4500 a week in living expenses in 1960. That's astounding. For, for some of our younger listeners who may not be as familiar with Elizabeth Taylor, can we think of like a current parallel or someone, someone of today that maybe has the same level of star power? Angelina Jolie, maybe? I can see that. Someone that truly commands quite a salary for every film. I think like it's probably more fleeting nowadays in Hollywood. Uh, I feel like we always get new, like, it is hard to think of, like, someone with quite the command and presence that Elizabeth Taylor had for, like, felt like to even get, like, budgets approved like this. Yeah, I'm trying to, I mean, there's, there's, there's actresses that had the kind of salary that she did, but I don't know about the star power. I think you're right. I don't, I don't know that there's a modern day equivalent. Right. Like, I think of, there was, there was a time, right, where, for example, Jennifer Lawrence was the talk of the town. Probably people, you know, people were paying top dollar to have her in the film, in their films, but not quite. I mean, I don't think at the same level. 
I don't think no. that she's getting oh. approved budgets for the entourage. I, I, I would say, I, all right, she's not an actress, but I would say Elizabeth Taylor had the same kind of star power that Kim Kardashian has, like that that level of fame. Yeah, no, that's probably, I totally agree. The obvious thing is that there's one side of that comparison has no talent, whereas <laughs> the, the star power commanded, <laughs> yes, it's very clear. Yeah. I'll let, I'll let the audience guess who I'm talking about. <laughs> well, speaking of Elizabeth Taylor, she soon fell sick with a sore throat, which left her unable to film for two weeks. Mamoulian, I'm, I'm getting a kick out of saying this guy's name, Mamoulian. He proceeded to film scenes without Taylor focusing on those with Peter Finch and Stephen Boyd. But her cold worsened to the point where it, it became meningitis, requiring hospitalization. By November 19th, Wanger indefinitely postponed shooting, and Taylor flew to Palm Beach, Florida with her then-husband Eddie Fisher to recover. Lloyd's of London Insurance Agency paid $2 million to cover her medical expenses. I didn't realize at the time just how ill she was, that the fact that they were ex almost expecting her to die from those illnesses. She had a tracheotomy, which you can see in much of the film, the scar that was left. Yeah, that was a little and bit later. Was that later? Yeah, she got sick multiple times. Ah, okay. Gotcha. <laughs> that wouldn't happen until April of 1961, which we'll get to, but... That's how ridiculous ah, okay. this is, though. Like, but to your point, though, like meningitis—that is a very serious illness. Yeah, we're not even at the tracheotomy yet. Ah, okay. I'll not that that's funny, it. but it, in the context right. of the making of this movie, it's a little funny. But it, you know, obviously, as you say, it talks to her the fact that she was quite fragile from a health perspective. Yes. So during this break in filming, for whatever reason, another writer was hired for another script. This guy, his name was Nunnally Johnson. He penned 75 new pages, but when filming resumed on January 3rd, 1961, Mamoulian and Elizabeth Taylor both declared their dislike for this new script. So that's two scripts in a row they weren't happy with. And after 16 weeks of on and off filming and costs of $7 million, the crew had produced just 10 minutes of usable film. Studio head Skoras was furious, and he placed the blame on Mamoulian, who resigned as director on January 18th. So, <laughs> Elizabeth Taylor said that she would only accept either George Stevens or Joseph L. Mankiewicz as a replacement. Mankiewicz initially declined the offer, but after meeting with Skoras and his agent, he agreed to both direct and write the film. To sweeten the deal, Skoras acquired Mankiewicz's independent production company for $3 million. So in addition to his salary, Mankiewicz received $1.5 million from that purchase, while his partner, NBC, received the other half. They sure were blowing money fast here, weren't they? Again, just to put this yeah, into that's... context, so by this point in the production, they had spent almost $10 million. That's $100 million in today's money. A quick note about Joseph Mankiewicz. He's probably not a well-known name these days, but he was a very highly regarded filmmaker in Hollywood for a very long time. He had a long career. He won Academy Awards for Best Director and won for Best Adapted Screenplay in consecutive years for A Letter to Three Wives in 1949 and All About Eve in 1950. His son, Tom Mankiewicz, is a fairly well-known Hollywood screenwriter who most famously worked on the script for the original Superman, Anton. He also co-wrote three James Bond movies in a row, Diamonds Are Forever, Live and Let Die, and The Man with the Golden Gun. Impressive. Yeah. His brother, Herman, is the subject of the 2020 David Fincher film, Mank. It chronicled his co-writing of the screenplay for Citizen Kane with Orson Welles. 
So he would have been a big name back then. Mankiewicz's first action was to declare the current screenplay, quote, unreadable and unshootable, end quote. He was granted two months to completely rewrite the film. So filming was set to resume on April 4th, 1961. However, on March 4th, here we go, Paul, Taylor was hospitalized once again for pneumonia. And one news agency even erroneously reported that she had died. She recovered after a tracheotomy and was performed on her throat. Oh, my so gosh. On March, on March 14th, Fox suspended production at Pinewood Studios. The sets were dismantled at the cost of $60,000, and that was it. They weren't going to film in England anymore. And that was it. No more that Pinewood. It. That was it for part one of the attempted making of Cleopatra. You would think that that much money in the hole, it'd be a pretty big deterrent, but no. I, I think it was just a question of they had spent basically almost $100 million in today's money, and they didn't have 10 minutes of film. Like, that is that is unbelievable. Unbelievable is one way of putting it. Now, so Skoros, again, the head of Fox, he wasn't keen on doing so, but he allowed Mankiewicz to shoot the film at Cinecita Studios in Rome. And Anton, this is where your favorite <laughs> film, Gangs of New York, was shot. Yes, and really interesting to think of uh, being able to shoot a lot of on-set location shots for the Rome scenes, right? Yeah. Well, speaking of sets, they constructed 60 sets from scratch for Cleopatra. The beach at Torre Astora, where Decure's massive replica of Alexandria was under construction, turned out to be laced with live mines left over from World War II. <laughs> So they had to spend $22,000 to clean that up. And then on top of it, the set was apparently adjacent to a NATO firing range, which complicated filming. Here's the best part so far. They faced their biggest challenge. They had to replace Peter Finch and Stephen Boyd, both of whom left to work on other films. They they were paid in full. They had no usable footage from either actor, had to pay out their contracts, and then they had to replace them. So to replace Finch and Boyd, Mankiewicz pursued Trevor Howard and Marlon Brando, the latter of whom had played Mark Anthony in the director's 1953 adaptation of Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. But neither actor was available, so... Mankiewicz set his sights on Rex Harrison and Richard Burton. And uh, we definitely recognize those names. And then starring on Broadway in Camelot. So Skouras disliked both choices, but eventually gave in. And Fox bought out the remainder of Burton's Camelot contract for $50,000, signed the actor for $250,000, and got Harrison for $200,000. Do we have any figures on how much that is adjusted for inflation? It's all about 10 times. Yeah, 10 that's X. just, it's just yeah. nuts. It's so just like, throwing you know, money. Yeah, so 500 grand to buy out the Camelot contract, 2.5 million for Burton, and then another 2 million for Harrison. So just, again, they're just like, they're like just a money. blackout drunk college student at a casino with a credit card. They just, yep, no idea of budget. A, a young Roddy McDowell uh, was cast as Octavian. And Mankiewicz decided to scrap all of Mamoulian's footage and start over from scratch. Only Taylor, Wanger, and John DeQueer, the art director, would carry over to the new incarnation of Cleopatra. The rest of the cast and crew were replaced, which is not cheap. No. By this point, Walter Wanger was pretty much sidelined, with Skouros and the rest of the Fox executives having lost all confidence in him. Many of his producers' duties fell to Mankiewicz. So basically, we're talking about an entirely new film at this point. 
filming would not resume until late September 1961, and Cleopatra was practically all Fox had left. Short of funds, the studio had canceled most of its other features and had pinned much of its hope on television. Mankiewicz, between scouting locations, assembled a ca- assembling a cast, and consulting with department heads, wasn't close to having a finished screenplay when shooting began on September 25th, a mere 132 pages out of an eventual 327, or most of the film's first half, so Caesar and Cleopatra, and none of its second half, Antony and Cleopatra. This meant that the film would be shot in sequence, an extremely costly decision that would eventually result in 96 hours of raw footage. This all sounds like quite a cursed uh, journey for this film. And just for the listeners, filming in sequence sounds exactly what it sounds like. They're just filming the scenes as they would unfold, as you would actually see them in the finished film. And movies almost never do this for the exact reason that you just touched on, Anton. It's costly. Basically, like if you're filming something at Pinewood Studios, you film all the scenes at Pinewood, and then you move on to a different location. But the way they did this, they were filming one thing, then they would go somewhere else in Rome to film something else, to the, one of the other 60 sets. Just nuts. Right. It's, uh, it doesn't make sense like efficiency-wise. It's just a huge waste. Yeah. And I don't have this in the notes per se, and I didn't read too much about this, but Paul, you touched on this earlier. Elizabeth Taylor's appearance in particular, changes dramatically throughout this film. You can really tell she was ill at, at you know certain parts throughout the film. Yeah, definitely. I mean, obviously her facial features changed quite a bit from different scenes to different scenes. I think, it, you know, for the length of time that that film was shot, it was clear that the continuity was never going to be there. Now, Rex Harrison, who is probably unknown to any younger moviegoers at this point, but he was a pretty big actor in his day. He was famously Dr. Doolittle, and he was the co-lead in My Fair Lady. That's probably what people would know him from the most. He was apparently quite difficult to deal with on set. Some of his surviving castmates referred to him as, quote, the cunt. Nevertheless, his scenes with Taylor went as smoothly as possible. Now, Elizabeth Taylor, she was quite intimidating, despite many people disliking her. After all this time, you know, she had really lost interest in the project and the studio had to, you know, cave to her further demands to get her back. In the wake of her near-death episode, which was now, you know, the second one that she endured on set, she was completely uninsurable. So if she walked off or fell ill, the movie, which was Elizabeth Taylor, would represent nothing but red ink. DeQueer's sets were grandiose and beautiful, but because no one had kept close tabs on his work, Mankiewicz and his crew discovered too late that they were almost unmanageably big the fake roman forum which costs 1.5 million to build dwarfed the real one up the road so that's insane millions were wasted on the italian grifting later i got to see the studios break down on the money waste says taylor they had three million dollars for miscellaneous and one hundred thousand dollars for paper cups they said i ate 12 chickens and 40 pounds of bacon every day for breakfast like what? <laughs> and it was later revealed that one of the studio executives owned a stake in a Roman catering company that kept getting mysteriously overpaid. So uh, at least someone had, you know, a nice fat wallet. By May, most of the filming had been completed, except for the Battle of Pharsalus, which would have opened the film and a few other sequences. On June first, Fox Studio executives arrived on set to cancel the uh, scheduled shoot of of the Battle of Pharsalus. <laughs> 
They uh, fired Wanger and ordered that Taylor's salary be terminated on June 9 and that all filming be halted by June 30th. Mankiewicz refused to accept this and demanded that Taylor's contract be extended, which it was. Both Taylor and Burton protested Wanger's firing, and after a brief negotiation, the studio allowed him to remain as producer, although much of his responsibilities were still being filled by Mankiewicz. The naval battle of Actium was hastily filmed off the coast of Italy. Taylor's last day on set was June 23rd. Three days later, under heavy pressure from the board, Skoros resigned as studio president. Well-known producer Daryl F. Zanuck replaced him, and his son, Richard Zanuck, joined him as one of the executives. We, we mentioned Richard on his, our very first episode, Planet of the Apes, um, and he was a longtime head at Fox. Yeah, very influential and very famous uh, producer who was instrumental in helping to launch the career of young Steven Spielberg. Principal photography ended on July 28th with the final location scenes in Egypt. The rough cut was over five hours. Zanuck demanded a workable cut of the film by no later than October, so Mankiewicz and the editing team got to work. He delivered a four and a half hour cut by the deadline. Zanuck thought it was well acted, but disliked the battle sequences. He wanted the film to be closer to three hours. Mankiewicz begged Zanuck to release the film in two separate parts, but this was flatly refused. Zanuck's concern was that the film was that the audiences would not go to see the first part, which featured very little of Taylor and Burton, whose affair was dominating the headlines by this point. He was further displeased with Cleopatra's dominance over Mark Antony, remarking, if any woman behaved towards me like Cleopatra treated Antony, I would cut her balls off. So he really didn't understand the female anatomy. I suppose (laughs) not. Yeah. Mankiewicz resisted more of Zanuck's editing demands, resulting in the studio head publicly dismissing him and bringing in editor Elmo Williams to supervise post-productions. So Williams deleted over 30 minutes of the now 40-hour cut. 40? Mank- sorry, four-hour wow. cut. The now like four-hour cut. Yeah. <laughs> it felt like, yeah, 40. Mankiewicz's dismissal from the project was harshly criticized by Taylor and Burton. But by December, Zanuck realized that Cleopatra had no official shooting script and that Mankiewicz was the only person capable of stitching the film together in a cohesive way. He reluctantly brought the burned-out director back. I, I, how, Dave, how is it possible <laughs> not to have a shooting script? Well, we've if we've learned anything is that this film defies anything that's possible. <laughs> that should have been the the tagline of the film. Anything is possible, <laughs> including accounting. Oh. Uh, with Mankiewicz reinstated as director, he partially restored several deleted sequences, including um, scenes of sausagenies, 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 sausages, studio. We'll, we'll go back. Um, that Phil Collins he, song, right? Sue Studio? All right. We're going to go back and I'll get it right. He partially restored several... W- no, I'm Mankiewicz- keeping this in. <laughs> Thank you. With Mankiewicz reinstated <laughs> as director, he partially restored several deleted sequences, including scenes of Soprano tutoring Cleopatra. In February 1963, several members of the cast, along with 1,500 extras, were called back to reshoot the Battle of Farsalus in Almeria, Spain. Mankiewicz then returned to London for eight consecutive days to reshoot new scenes with Burton at Pinewood Studios. <laughs> the retakes primarily concerned Anthony's scenes with his fourth wife, Octavia, and his companion, Rufio. 
Why not? They're already down the hole that much. Yeah. On March 5th, 1963, filming was finally completed. Just a reminder that filming began in September 1960. And in between that time, a lot of films came out that were pretty top-notch. James Bond series started in 1962. You uh, you already mentioned, Pat, a, a, f- a few all-time great Alfred Hitchcock films. Yeah, we had a bunch. Lawrence of Arabia came out during that time. Spartacus. So there was a lot of expectations uh, with a lot of wait for this film. When the reshoots were done, Mankiewicz, with Zanuck looking over his shoulder, edited Cleopatra down to its 243-minute premiere length. Though they were publicly allies again, the director was unhappy with this version and still thought Zanuck had done him a disservice by not allowing Cleopatra to be shown in two parts. Mankiewicz called Cleopatra the toughest three pictures I ever made. In his epitaph for the film, that it was conceived in a state of emergency, shot in confusion, and wound up in a blind panic, is one of Filmdom's most famous quotes. Cleopatra ended up being five minutes longer than Gone with the Wind, previously the studio's longest film. Skoros and Zanuck pretty much blamed everything on Walter Wenger, who would never make another movie. So take from Fiasco, he had meant for Cleopatra to be a happy culmination of a distinguished career that begun in 1921. Instead, he was forced on premiere night to sit through a movie he hadn't seen and had been stripped of. So this is something we try to reiterate on this podcast. Box office numbers can be misleading. So it looks like on paper that it can be profitable. What can look profitable can mean something else entirely. This was the highest grossing film of 1963, but it had cost so much to make that Fox ended up losing money on it. And something that we've talked about before as well, Pat, is the, the numbers don't account for any of the marketing done for the film. Right. You know, you have to think marketing would have been cheaper then. But here's the thing, right? So it cost them $44 million. It made $57 million at the box office. They have to split that 57 with the theaters. So they ended up with like 23 and change. So they lost almost $20, $20 million making this film. And then here's the best part. Fox was forced to sell 240 acres of their lot for $43 million as part of the financial windfall from this. That land was later turned into Century City, which is now a section of Los Angeles. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Just it's really this film really did a did a number on the studio and just changed things for for Fox in a very different way. Yeah, and here's something else. Paul, I think you might have brought this up over the past few days or somebody did. So the budget for this was triple that of Ben-Hur, which had come out four years earlier. That was previously the most expensive film ever made at the time, right? So that would have been a $15 million budget. If you take the high-end estimate of this, $44 million, this is still, Cleopatra is still one of the three most expensive films ever produced adjusted for inflation. If you take the low-end estimate, it's still in the top 10. They essentially made the film twice. But what's even worse is that they didn't get to they didn't get to anything near a finished film on the first go, despite having spent nearly a hundred million in today's money. I almost want to say, Anton, that this film is impressive, but you can see because you can technically see every dollar on screen. But mm-hmm. I do think this is a really, really good looking film, but does it look three times better than Ben Hur? No, no. It's just even felt yeah, there's so many films that we just chatted about with not like nowhere close to this kind of budget superior movies through and through but do you think also the original vision for cleopatra at the very beginning morphed into what mankovich wanted 
to produce and they're two very different types of films. So like you said, that they were paying for two different films. So the costs were way more, but you ended up with one particular type of film. It's hard to even say with all the with all the rewrites that went on in the in the first part of filming, there was at least two scripts there. It sounds like there's two or three scripts after Mankiewicz took over because he rewrote it and then they did reshoots. I don't even know if you can say this is Mankiewicz's like vision. I, I, it's like you know he had some really funny quotes about it, but it's it's like you have to ask yourself: Is this just the best they could do given the circumstances and the cost? I think at a certain point they probably said there's it would cost more money to fix this. This is probably the best that we're gonna get. Yeah. At that point all the all the cost they had sunk into it. Yeah, they were Cleopatra you know, I mean, didn't even break even until nineteen sixty six when they sold the T V rights to ABC for five million dollars. So but by that point, a film you mentioned earlier, Anton, The Sound of Music, that had come out a year earlier. It cost them eight million dollars to make, and it was an unexpected mega hit. It made a hundred million dollars during its first box office run. But had the sound of music flopped, it would have been the end of twentieth century Fox. Well, come you know, one of the things that we look at, of course, there are, are the awards that the film gets, and the film won Oscars for its production design, costumes, and cinematography and special effects. Very well deserved, right, gentlemen? Definitely. But it was nominated for Best Picture and Director. Rex Harrison received the only acting nomination for Best Actor. Funny, he's uh, only in about half of the film. There's no such thing as a small role. There's only small actors. Is that what they say? Yeah. I'm sure Rex Harrison was grateful to be done. (laughs) Reviews were mixed, and we already chatted about what, uh, although an impressive box office return, uh, it doesn't really break even. And today, the film stands at about a 56% Rotten Tomatoes score. So... All that to say is, and I bring my arm out and say, welcome to Cleopatra. Yeah, that's the making of it. We have hundreds of films on our list that we're going to cover, Anton, and we might not find one that has that complicated and troubled of a production. At least not an obvious one. And we haven't even gotten into the main story of this film, right? The second reason why this film wasn't better, Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton, the two leads... (laughs) We've been talking about Elizabeth Taylor. By the time that she took this role, she had a very bad reputation in Hollywood as being difficult to work with. Paul, you mentioned her fragile health. It was complicated by heavy smoking. She was a binge drinker. She used a lot of drugs. And she, she had what, would, what we would describe today as an eating disorder. She would go long periods of time without eating, followed by bouts of overeating, rinse and repeat. Nobody um, tried to treat this effectively back then. And then Richard Burton, her co-star, he showed up to his first day of filming extremely hungover. Richard Burton has always had that reputation in terms of his drinking. And actually, I've seen interviews uh, with Roddy McDowell and some of the actors from Where Eagles Stand that Richard Burton was in. And they've earned more money because Richard Burton couldn't turn up for certain scenes. So they had to sort of suspend shooting for another day. So each day was longer than they anticipated being on set. So they're getting paid more. So actually he helped supplement a lot of people's wages. Very generous of him. It was tremendous. Yeah, he had a long history of infidelity as well. And he he had apparently made it a, a pass at Elizabeth Taylor, you know, years before this. She had rejected him at the time. But now that they were working working together on this 
this ridiculous movie, she was now infatuated with him, and she seemed to not really care that her husband, Eddie Fisher, was on set all of the time. Kind of ridiculous. And Burton was equally obsessed with her. Their affair began in January of 1962, shortly after they began filming scenes together. Now, Mankiewicz, he quickly identified the gravity of the situation and alerted the studio heads. But their affair really did overshadow the entire film. It dominated the tabloid press at the time. You mentioned this before, Pat, and I'm actually seeing even more parallels now with Angelina Jolie. There was a time, right, where Angelina Jolie was the biggest female star in Hollywood. And remember how much buzz there was when she and Brad Pitt got together on Mr. and Mrs. Smith. And at the time, Brad Pitt was, I forget if she was married or seeing uh, Jennifer Aniston. He was married. yeah, he was ma- the man was married. So yeah, very similar situation. Very similar situation. Yeah, and when when we cover one of my favorite movies, Proof of Life, and we talk about Russell Crowe breaking up Meg Ryan's marriage to Dennis Quaid at the time because they were working together. I mean, there, there's been other examples of this before, but I think Elizabeth Taylor. Yeah, Angelina Jolie does sound like the only real sort of modern day comparison. And then Brad Pitt was, of course, that level of fame. Richard Burton was was a was a huge actor back in his day. You know, we talked about him right um, on the Exorcist Two podcast. And, and it was a bit- uh, Paul, I'm glad you mentioned Where Eagles Dare because I I too share your love for that film. That it's one of my favorite movies. I've watched that about a hundred times and never ever get tired of watching it. I, every time it's on, my my family just sigh because they know they're in for two hours. <laughs> Second World War boys' own action. Have you seen that movie, Anton? I have not. Oh, you're going to love it. It's Richard Burton and young Clint Eastwood. There's a it, castle. It's World War Two. It's got a great cast, and it's also got a great story. Yeah. There's some really cool commando shit. Mm, I have not I have not seen it. I'm going to have to check it out. Okay, you, don't, you, don't, you don't sound that excited. I'm a little concerned. <laughs> I, 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 I promise you, I'm quite excited. Okay, all right. Yeah, so, it, it technically qualifies for this podcast because it was released basically during the height of the Vietnam War and it bombed in America, but it's like a pretty highly regarded film. A lot of Call of Duty stuff in that movie. I'll just say that. To the, uh, to the point about the Taylor Burton relationship, there was a great quote by George Cole. And he said, uh, the romance between Taylor and Burton was a headache for all of us because every day's shoot depended on whether they'd get on well the night before. If they hadn't, one of the other wouldn't show up. The director had to then alternate filming schedules every day and would revert if to it if his stars were ever at loggerheads. The result for us was never knowing whether we were going to work or not. So you could see, like, if one of them fell out, they didn't turn up, shooting canceled and the cost just keeps spiraling really did overshadow everything i really feel for mankowitz even though they paid him a lot of money like this was just just sounds like it's just miserable managing those egos constantly well shout out to him because not only was he writing it directing it he took full control of production he was working i think 18 hours a day seven days a week he was receiving serious amounts of medication just to keep him going the likelihood he probably could have died if it had gone on any longer just from exhaustion so he he was a man of uh you know a strong drive to get keep going through all of that despite all the issues around production amazing and i think it would have been all maybe maybe worth it if if burton and taylor had turned in great performances but i i'm not impressed with either one of them in this film they're fine it's probably their most, their two most famous roles for both of them. 
but this is hardly their best work. Well, I think it goes towards the points you know we talked about before, Pat, about the film being more of a theatre play than an actual film. You kind of, if you sat there and looked at it, you'd actually think, well, actually, I could have sat in a theatre, you know, a, a proper play and watched this. It's not really a movie. It's a lot of talking. It's a lot of dialogue. There's lots of times when they would just look to one side and talk and talk and talk and then come and look at the cast again and then someone else will pick up the dialogue and they drift off and look into the far distance and talk and then come back. There's not a lot of cuts. There's a lot of talking. And so it, there isn't a lot of excitement to kind of drive the narrative. You're right about they would just bring in certain actors like, oh, Martin Landau, you want to come in here for 90 seconds and say say a couple things to Richard Burton and then wander off? Yeah, I mean, there was a classic scene, if I don't really remember, but where Mark Antony and Cleopatra go to Alexander's, uh, where he's laying in state, in his tomb. And you just, sorry, it was her, sorry, her and Julius Caesar. And each time they spoke, they would just look off into the distance and walk off. And then they'd come back and then she would talk and then she'd look from the distance and come back. And it's such a slow, plodding scene that goes on for quite some time. Whereas today we're used to a lot of faster cuts, but also people looking at each other when they're talking. Whereas this is very much evocative to a stage play. No, that's a really, really good you know, call yeah. out. Actually, uh, I don't know if there, if either of you have seen um, like any uh, Chinese epic films, like uh, I think Curse of the Golden Flower or even Red Cliff. A lot of similarities around when there's kind of epic films like this, like very bombastic, dramatic scenes um, with that almost often feel almost maybe to someone that's not a thespian over exaggerated. But maybe if even if I was a thespian, I'd say it felt a little over exaggerated. I haven't, but I'm I'm intrigued now. I've heard of Curse of the Golden Flower for sure. I've just written them down. I'm gonna watch them. Couple points I wanted to make about Elizabeth Taylor before we move on to the next reason. She trashed this film. She was not happy with it. She believed that many of her best scenes with Burton were cut. And including her salary, she ended up making two point four million dollars for this. So again, that's about $24 million in today's money. So I guess it was all worth it in the end for her. And of course, even though both of them were married to other people, when they met making this, it, it did blossom into a real romance. After leaving their respective spouses, they married in 1964, they divorced in 1974, they remarried in 1975, and then they divorced for good in 1976. Just, just ridiculous, ridiculous behavior. Commercially, this was the peak of um, Taylor's career. Three years later, she won her second Oscar for, for what most people consider her finest performance, including myself, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which she's in, of course, with Burton. They're both incredible in that movie, if you've ever seen it. But then I didn't really realize this until doing the research for this film. So she wins the second Oscar, and then her career is basically over. So looking at her filmography, she was pretty much toast after 1967. She was only 35 years old. Kind of baffling. But it does sound like a combination of things. I mentioned, you know, she didn't have a good reputation. She was difficult to work with. She did gain weight. I think it's the most polite way of saying it would be she was high maintenance. But she is pretty much regarded as the last star of what's known as the golden age of Hollywood. 
it's interesting to think of, you know, what you mentioned, the golden age of Hollywood. And it's fair to say maybe was this kind of like this the swan song to that? Yeah, I think very much so. A lot of things changed after this movie. Yeah, there's it's it's really interesting to think and you know, we'll we'll probably end up watching a lot more films from that era. I think this is actually the oldest film that we've talked about up to this yeah, it point. Is. Yeah. And you know, I I have you know, I'm I'm very fond of films from that era. There's like of course classics, all-time great actors and actresses and with that though, it's it's interesting to think that our first intro- introduction to that era is kind of the end of it. I mean, we're talking about, you know, Richard Burton. You know, it's it's sad to have seen that, you know, right up until, you know, his uh, untimely death in 1985, he was still, you know, in the industry, but really, you know, had his own, like, you know, battles with alcoholism and that impacting, you know, his liver. And, and it's just, it's just terrible. I mean, we saw him in Exorcist 2, The Heretic, and I know, Pat, you joke, you could see him just sweating like bourbon, but you weren't that far off. Like he did not look great in that film. No. And I, I feel like we're kind of doing him a disservice because he is, he, he truly is one of the greatest actors of the 20th century. And we're, we're covering like t- probably two of his worst performances. Yeah. And it's, and it, you're right. Like it's not fair because he really is from that golden age. And, yeah. you know, but again, like if this, if this podcast was, let's talk about great films and only talk about how great they were, then um, we'd probably talk about him a lot more. The other thing to remember that he was well known as a theatre actor on the stage. He loved acting, got lots and lots of awards that way. So if he'd just been, I think, a film actor, I think we, he would have done a lot more films. But he did spend an awful lot of time in the West End on the stage or on Broadway because he was that good. He was a great actor across both mediums. So it's just to judge him on those films, I think, is unfair because he did have a huge body of work on stage as well, which was well respected. That's going to bring us to the third reason why this wasn't better, which is the runtime. I, I do have to say there is something particularly dreadful about watching a movie for an hour, pausing it, and then seeing there's three hours remaining. This film rambles. <laughs> yeah, Our problem think- with this movie, because I think we're all in agreement on this, We don't have a problem with old movies. Anton, you said it. I'm looking forward to covering old movies. I was excited to cover this movie. But, you know, Paul, you mentioned how there's just scenes where actors are just staring into nothing. Similar to this, there's something I noticed. Despite the incredible length, there's at least a half dozen scenes that just end, Mm -hmm. like a rapid cut or a fade to black without any real conclusion to them. It it almost seems like it ended like mid-sentence with the dialogue. It's clear that they were just pasted into the film without any real thought about how they were going to transition into the next scene. You can really see where Mankiewicz was was just cutting and pasting stuff. Yeah, um, for me, what kind of accentuated like this feeling of, oh gosh, there's so much more, was actually the introduction of Cleopatra. So you get this scene, right? Julius Caesar's in his, like, you know, with, speaking with his generals, and you know gets brought in a carpet there's clearly someone in the carpet and he bring and there's this long dialogue of like well like if you do this with a carpet while i swing around my sword and they just go on and on and on and then you just know there's someone in the carpet and then eventually cleopatra clumsily falls out of the carpet and you're i I pause it right there and i'm like oh god there's three more hours of this (laughs) 
I think the, the crime here, if there is one, is not only does it feel like a stage play, but there's so much, instead of, you know, the adage about show, not tell, it's all tell and no show. Yep. They talk about events that have happened, either in the past or what's going to happen. They don't actually show you it, which is probably more interesting, whether it be a battle, an event, a, a wedding, whatever it is, show this stuff. But they don't. They only talk about it and then they move on to something else. So it just adds more dialogue. And as you say, Anton, it just becomes like a slog. It's like, God you know, another hour of this. Can I take it? Mm -hmm. Is there going to be something exciting that I'm finally going to see that makes all of this worthwhile? There are battle scenes in this film, but they all move at the same pace as the dialogue scenes, which I didn't even think was possible until seeing this movie. It really felt like they were trying to do dialogue scenes in the battle sequences where they're talking about like moving the ships around. They're like, Octavian ship is over here. And what about this one? It's moving into this part of the bay. So it really created for me a, 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 an immense lack of tension, and it only made the runtime more noticeable. There's no tension in any of the four hours. No. And what is, I think, a really good example of this, and, and you touched on it, Pat, about gladiators. So Russell Crowe's character, we knew nothing about him. But within the first, what, 10 minutes, he led all those Roman soldiers into battle, he was a force to be reckoned with. So you knew he had the drive and the ambition and the tactical awarenesses and he was well-respected, etc., etc. The first scene in Cleopatra is the battle's finished and Julius Caesar's just kind of tidying up. So you've got no understanding of his tactical nouns, how, what sort of courage, what knowledge he has, how respected he is. You're just sort of told that this battle's over and he's great and that's it. Whereas I think if they'd showed that battle and him in it, I think it would have made a much more exciting start to a film. They probably had the budget for it and then blew it on something else and didn't have the opportunity to make it. It's not often that we say this, but it's very possible this film is like two hours too long. But then again, you you once you learn that it really was supposed to be two films, it makes a lot more sense. Yeah, nope, that's uh, that's fair enough. The final reason why this wasn't better, I have this lumped into the same thing, the story and the characters. I mentioned how there's no tension. For as long mm-hmm. as this film is, they do gloss over major parts of the story. Like, Paul, you mentioned we don't get to see the opening battle. The war between Caesar and Pompey Magnus, which, you know, that's what preceded the events of this film, right? The friendship between Caesar and Brutus the internal political strife that leads to Brutus betraying Caesar, and then the civil war which leads to Octavian crowning himself Caesar, right? All of this stuff gets glossed over because they keep trying to bring it back to Cleopatra, who, yes, I understand she's supposed to be the main character. But even though the film is four hours, I got the sense that it was like skimming a book rather than reading it. Yeah, to be fair, that's probably... I mean, we talked about it that it was a pretty subpar experience when it came to actually getting like a proper script for this film. And when you're dealing with like the story of Caesar or a story of Julius Caesar, I mean, that in itself, like right, Shakespearean tales and also it's it's enough content on itself that it's also been adapted. How do you properly write that story going on when you're also trying to tell the story of Cleopatra? It does take hard work. 
the biggest problem for me, the the fatal flaw of this film is in the context of the larger, bigger picture story, which is essentially like the events leading up to and including the Roman Civil War, which leads to the fall of the Republic and the beginning of the Empire. At least the way I was taught it in school and the way that the, where it interested me, Cleopatra was much more of a supporting character. And I do understand the actual historical figure Cleopatra was pretty interesting. But in the context of all these events that are going around her, I just found her story far less interesting. And this made me want to watch the HBO series Rome. I just did not find her story that interesting compared to Julius Caesar's, like you said, Anton, and then like Octavian becoming Caesar Augustus. Like that stuff interests me more. So that's always been the fatal flaw for me when I was watching this. Mm -hmm. Do you also feel that, you know, Cleopatra was using Julius Caesar to get herself on the throne again and her dispute with her brother. They could have built a whole story just around that before even Julius Caesar even entered into the picture. They barely touch on it. You know, it, yeah, it was like, that's already happening. There's a dialogue, you know, voiceover going on, sort of explaining kind of what was going on. And then Julius Caesar comes over on the boats and then basically supports her. But we had no real concept of what the dispute really was about. And that would have, to me, if you're going to call it Cleopatra, that should have been more of the focus. All the other stuff aren't necessarily that important. It's how she manipulated those two leaders for her own gain. But it sort of meandered between, okay, the focus is now on Julius Caesar, then it became Cleopatra, and then it became Mark Antony. And it wasn't, you as a, as a viewer weren't really sure, what, who am I meant to be rooting for here? Because none of them are particularly likable, let's face it. No, that's, that's the other biggest problem of this for me. I don't know who we're supposed to root for. Cleopatra's not likable. You know, the way she manipulates it, the way she's portrayed by Elizabeth Taylor is not particularly likable. She doesn't really have much of a personality. To your point, you don't really know what a lot of her motivations are in terms of the, the feud between her and her brother. They don't really touch on that. Rex Harrison, he's not, he doesn't, I don't know. I don't picture Julius Caesar when I think of Rex Harrison. He's, he was pretty old for this role at this point. I know Caesar was supposed to be middle-aged, but, I mean, 4K is not kind to this man. <laughs> like, no offense, Rex Harrison, but, like, you know, he, he looked older than he was. I think in, he was about 60 in this film. He looked older, but he's not likable. Mark Antony is kind of a mook. You know, he just lets himself get manipulated. O Octavian's basically a sociopath. I do like Roddy McDowell's performance in this, actually, but yep. you don't root for him. No. I Yeah. I made like a, I, I, I was trying to like be a contrarian. I said, well, what if it, you just view it as a tragedy and you just see it as the downfall of the character and that necessarily, there, there isn't necessarily like any character that you root for in that story. That kind of makes more sense to me, but it's not necessarily like a great way to tell the story. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good point. I think if they'd have sort of portrayed it as, the tragedy of these empires, of the people that were involved, the, the cost of life, everything else, I think probably would have been quite an interesting thread through the film. But they were trying to portray these people as heroic, noble leaders who were sort of betrayed by other people. And it just, again, it's that focus. Am I meant to root for these people or say, well, good riddance, move on? Yeah, and there there wasn't any deep nuance. It was really just more razzle-dazzle. We have Elizabeth Taylor as Cleopatra. 
And I think that was kind of the big takeaway. Um, maybe it suffered because, you know, with Spartacus, there was someone you rooted for throughout that. And again, with like Ben-Hur, and they were all leading to very climatic scenes in the in the story. Whereas this sort of peaked and troughed and peaked and troughed. And then there was a sort of felt like a half-hearted sea battle at which then Cleopatra buggers off. And then Mark Antony sees the ship going and he just basically says, bye, suckers, I'm off. And then we're meant to feel sympathy for their love story. I, I, it's just the tone of it was kind of all over the place. And then it took another half hour to conclude. Like yeah. he, he, I mean, Mark Antony, he took what, like 15 minutes to die? He milked after he that stabs scene. himself? Yeah. If you're going to die, make sure it's 15 minutes worth of dialogue. It would have worked way better if they had just done the two movie idea. I mean, I, I for one, I found the first half far more interesting than the second half. The studio, we touched on this, they were terrified that the People would lose interest in the first movie if it didn't have Burton in it, who was getting all the publicity with Taylor. Mm. Did either of you notice Q from James Bond in this film? I've got it in my notes. The same. Nice. There he was. <laughs> yes. Did you notice yeah. him, Anton? Yes, I did. Desmond, Desmond. Llewellyn yep. plays one of the Roman senators, and he gets a handful of lines. That was sadly my favorite part of the film. <laughs> <laughs> That was the only part of the uh, film that got me excited. I was like, oh, it's Q. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, in terms of spectacle, the the entrance to Rome and the fact that in that time there was there was no special effects that that they used a lot in this film. And to get all of those sets built, all those people people coordinated, the dancing, the you know the the sphinx that comes through, she coming down. I mean, and the dancing and everything else. I mean, that is impressive, whichever way you look at it. Yeah, I mean, it's impressive, and like this is maybe just the cynic in me, in that it's just also sad that this was the end of the golden age, that this that it was an overbloated film that went weight like. For that stupidly went too big on building sets that went unchecked, that it has all of the guild, but none of the real quality that, you know, predecessors that had built much better films were able to do. And when I think about that, and I think about like how great the golden age was because of like things like practical effects, dedication to set design, makeup, and really just doing what they could with what they had. A film like An American in Paris comes to mind where you just kind of make beauty with what you have in the set and just the ability of the actors and actresses there. And then you have a film like Cleopatra where it had all the money in the world and it couldn't make a great film. So it's it's just sad to think about. But hey, that's just me being being a bit of a downer note at the end of it. <laughs> well, I mean, I think we can wrap, wrap it up. If, um, if anyone else has anything to add about the reasons, you know, why wasn't this better? The production was as troubled as they come. Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton's affair and onset antics, they overshadowed everything. It's about, uh, I don't know, an hour and a half too long. It should have been two films. And then the story and the characters, there's nobody to root for. There's no tension. Did, did we like it? Paul, you're the guest. Would you like to go first and render your rating? It's a really tough one. I think because I'm watching it... After you know so much time, the audience that it was aimed at, I think, had very different expectations than what we do today. 
So I kind of have to try and frame it like that. But it totally underachieved. So from a, I always thought that like you know a C minus is the start of a uh, you know that you're underachieving. Should have done far better with the abilities that you had, the money you had, the stars and the creativity that was available. It should have been a far better film. But it still delivered a four hour epic. And people went to see it. They enjoyed the stardom and the, the glitter that went with it. So, and changed some of the fashions of the sixties because of it. So, its influence did transcend beyond the film as well. So, I wouldn't want to give it any less, but I certainly wouldn't give it any more. So, C minus. C minus for me. I think that's generous. Very Thanks. generous. I was trying to figure out how to rate this as well. And like you, I found it challenging. It does look good. There's some really impressive effects in it, despite the age of this film. A lot of matte paintings that are really cool. Some really good model work. At this point, I'm just I'm just scratching my head trying to figure out, like, what did it do well apart from the technical parts, right? The acting is fine. Nothing's really bad, but there's nothing amazing. Nobody, nobody really impressed me immensely. But yeah, considering the drama, the money, the problems... I actually have to do give it and, you know, I have to give Mankiewicz a lot of credit for actually managing to put together a coherent story. It's barely coherent. It does flow in a somewhat cohesive way. There's a lot of weird time jumps that I don't think they do a good job of explaining out. They, they hop around from Egypt to Rome pretty quickly, it seems like, when in, in reality that would have taken weeks, if not months. It's a big mess, though. It really is. It just... Seems like 90 minutes of fluff. Anton, we've used the word bloated on this podcast mm-hmm. to describe, you know, a, a few different films. This redefines bloated. This is a bloated whale carcass of a film. Yeah. And I was doing some math. Think about it like this. This film is four hours long. So each hour of this film cost the studio more than $100 million in today's money to make. The two-part film idea, it would have made this way more bearable. The runtime really works against it. I mentioned it a few times now, but there's no tension at all. The performances, you know, they're fine, but there's no one to root for. I have here written down, this is an amazing to look at relic of a bygone era. It is exceptionally well made. It's fascinating almost in an academic way, but there's no possibility of me ever revisiting it. I'm giving it a D plus. Well, um, for a film that costs about $1.6 million a minute, you would, I, I, I think I would have a much higher expectation for what went into it. But we can't stress enough how much of a black hole this film is in terms of the budget that went in, the time that went in, the resources that went in. And when I look on the screen, I do see like the technical, the, the set design, and I think that kept me in it for the most part, like I really was very impressed with just the world building and on-set location filming and of course the beauty of Pinewood Studios. I can't deny that. And I think that while the story was flawed and the performances weren't the best in the world, it was just kind of like just enough going on that like I wasn't entirely turned off from the experience. But at the same time, there like there really just wasn't any enough drama or tension to really warrant like a four hour film. So I think you both said like you, you both put it best and I feel like anything longer for me would end up making this segment bloated. So I'm gonna go ahead and just say I'm giving this film for myself a D. Paul C minus 
me D plus Anton D. Wow, I've really reversed from the previous podcast. I mean, C minus isn't much more than D, you know. True, but I was well. All three of us hated Alien Three. No, none of yeah. us hate this film. Yeah, no, I don't. I don't no. hate this film. No, no. But th- Paul, but would th- you ever watch this again? No, no. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I jumped in there too early. I would watch it if I was researching some things, and I'd just be interested to see how it was played out in this film. But I wouldn't go. Do you know what? It's a rainy day. I've got four hours to spare. I'm going to put Cleopatra back on again. I don't think I'll ever do that. I think I might just look at certain scenes because of the spectacle of it all and just look at how he must have put all of this together. But it's not a, it's not a returnable film. It's no Where Eagles Dare. No. Oh, Anton, we're going to do a Where Eagles Dare. That's going to be a good one. Okay. I'm excited. Well, that's it for Cleopatra. Paul, thank you so much for joining us once oh, again. Thank, thank you very much for having me on. <laughs> yes. Thank you, Paul. Happy. And um, from, from, from us here in the States, uh, happy Thanksgiving. Indeed. Happy Thanksgiving to all. Um, Anton, what do we have lined up for next week? Oh, um, I believe that uh, we we have ourselves quite a treat of a film, don't we? We do. One, it's another one, anniversary film. I was going to say, uh, it's not Home Alone 2. No, it's a bit of an epic. We're talking about The Last Samurai. Oh, there we go. You thought you were, you were, you were on a completely other page, weren't you? Yes, I was on a completely different page. <laughs> but here we are. <laughs> We landed there, the last samurai. Tom Cruise. Yeah. Tom Cruise in a in a misunderstood, underrated film, in my opinion. Paul, any uh, any thoughts on the last samurai? Do you know what? I have not seen it probably since it came out. So now you guys have whetted my appetite. I might go delving into the archive and watch that. It's, it's a fun film. I definitely. I haven't love seen the it cast. in a while either. I think um, just to kind of touch back on like epic films like stu- and, and studio pieces like this man it's just what what are some recent ones nowadays that you can just kind of say oh yeah this is this is hollywood doing epic films again the last duel maybe the last yeah no for sure i was thinking of something like that um it seems like napoleon is gonna be mm-hmm. that yeah arthur or whatever tim timothy chalamet was who did he play which king did he play henry that was it he played king henry oh on netflix was it a Netflix film? I thought it was like a fit like That's a Netflix uh, film. It's called The King. Uh, That's what you're thinking of? I think so. Yeah, which, I believe he plays Sha- Henry V. Yep, with Chalamet. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yep. Man, there's not many of them left though. Yeah, that's it. Gentlemen, that's it for Cleopatra. We'll see all the listeners next week for The Last Samurai. And that is it. Once again, happy Thanksgiving from all of us here at Why Wasn't It Better? Yeah.